Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And in all he does, he prospers. Psalm 1 is one of the most beautiful psalms for me, and it has for a long time had a long-lasting impact since I memorized it years ago. And the reason it's so beautiful is because in it we find a way to true happiness, true peace, true comfort, and strength in the midst of great and difficult trials. You see, it provides a key to weathering through the most difficult circumstances in life. And we find that key by noticing what it says the blessed man does and then clinging to that truth ourselves. Look there with me, Psalm 1. In verse 1 it says, Blessed is the man. And then in verse 2, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The idea of being blessed in the Hebrew language means happy in a rich, full sense of happiness. That's what we all long for, isn't it? And the psalmist says we achieve this by delighting in the law and meditating on it. Then as we do this, blessings pour forth. Blessings in verse 3, like yielding fruit when it's needed to be yielded, not withering under the scorching heat of trials, or spiritually prospering. Now the flow of verse 2 in this psalm suggests that delight in the word is linked to meditation on the word, and then these blessings pour out as they are needed. So biblical meditation on the Word of God is one of the keys to having true happiness, peace, comfort, and strength in the midst of trials. So as a Christian, we should want to know what biblical meditation is. Years ago, I read a book called Spiritual Disciplines by an author named Donald Whitney. And he defines biblical meditation as deep thinking of the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. You see, I start out this way because this kind of meditation is what we are after in this Christmas series, in this Advent series that we are putting forward for you. Because each week what we're doing is we're focusing on only one or two verses. And what we're really trying to do is seek to meditate on the truths and the spiritual realities revealed in them that show the gifts that Jesus brings to us through his incarnation. Now, as we look at such a small portion of Scripture, at only one verse, it's important for us to be careful to always keep the context of that verse in mind. Because the context around it is what's going to help us to determine what that application is, what the Holy Spirit and the author, Paul, longed for us to apply it as. But we also need to think correctly on those verses and understand them in order to understand 
the context that they're within. So today we have the task of looking at one simple verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And it's a verse that, as you'll see, seems simple enough to understand with just a quick reading. But when we meditate on it, what I believe we find is truths and spiritual realities that would take us an eternity to fully grasp. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where the Apostle Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now church, the depth of awe-inspiring beauty in this verse is astounding. And my hope is simply to open the glories found within it, and to send you on your own personal journey of meditation on it throughout this week. Now, you'll begin to notice from the start, it says the word for at the beginning of this. And what we can tell from this opening by Paul is that this verse is intended to be used as a reason for something that came before it. It shows this is a proposition that supports the one prior to it. So this means that we need to see the verses outside of this verse to understand what Paul intended for it. But before we do that, I want us to be able to think deeply on what this verse is saying so that when we look at the broader context and when we see how Paul is using this, we can see just what he intended this verse to do for us. So we're going to start just by looking at this verse one phrase at a time, and then we're going to pull out to the greater context and ask ourselves, how should this affect us? So look back at verse 9, right at the beginning, where we are encouraged to think on the grace of Christ. Now, the opening of this verse is worth paying great attention to. Just look there with me. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Depths of which we will never really comprehend this side of eternity. Grace that is completely unmerited. Grace that is lavished upon us in love. Grace that's full of kindness towards undeserved sinners like us. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is astounding. Let me ask you, do you think often on the grace of Christ? Do you know it? And by knowing it, I don't mean you just know of it. You don't just recite the words, we are saved by grace alone, without a sense of the wonder of that statement. You don't sing the lyrics, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, without the reality of that sinking deep into your bones. Just think on it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Kindness that is beyond measure. Compassion to us who are weak. 
strength for the weary, peace and comfort for the hurting, healing for the sick, love for the broken, provision for the needy, salvation for the rebel. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just ponder it. Do you know this grace? Have you experienced this grace? Now what I want you to notice though is that the Apostle Paul assumes that his readers know this grace. He says, you know of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you are in this room and you have truly trusted in Christ, you do know of this grace. And if you don't, then the reality is you haven't truly been redeemed. You haven't truly placed your trust in Him. You may be claiming to it by an intellectual knowledge, but salvation, trusting in Jesus Christ, goes beyond intellectual assent. Now before we move on, this Reminder by the Apostle Paul has spoken so deeply to my heart this past week. For the sake of time, I won't go into details, but I've personally been facing a great season of difficult trials. And truthfully, there's been moments where I felt like it was all too unbearable. You know those times you know those times when you cry out, how long, oh Lord? I don't think I can bear any more of this. But church, this past week, I found the thought come into my mind. Ben, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I pondered, as I thought of this grace, peace would start to come. Comfort would come. The strength that I needed to press on would be given to me by that very grace. So don't move on too quickly from this phrase. Think on the grace of Christ and let it refresh your soul. Think on it hour by hour, day by day, and let it lift you up from the trials of this life and set your gaze upon the glories of Jesus. the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some ways we could stop there. But Paul actually wants us to think on a very specific way that the grace of Christ has been shown to us. So we're going to look at the next phrase where he encourages us then to think on the eternal riches of Christ. Look back at our verse he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Now, beloved, this statement, this phrase carries so much weight to it when we really think about what it was saying. Paul says that Christ was rich. And the question is, when or how was he rich? If you've been tracking along with us through the Gospel of Luke, which we've been in for quite some time, you'll know that there was never a moment in Jesus Christ's life here on earth that he would be considered rich by anyone. He was not born to royalty, but to a carpenter. He was not born in a palace, but in a manger. 
As he grew up, he didn't acquire fame and fortune, but he says he had nowhere to lay his head. So when or how was he rich? Well, we can give no other answer than to look at who he was before he was laid in a manger. You see, this simple statement by Paul then points to the profound truth of who Jesus was as he was laid in a manger. So who was he? John 1, 1 through 3 in verse 14 provide the clearest teaching of who Jesus was. And let these words sink in as you turn there with me. The Apostle John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we see a few things here that are astounding. We see that the Word was both God and with God. We see that nothing was made without Him. Therefore, He was not created. And then we see that this Word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Apostle John says, He saw His glory. Now, if you continue to read the Gospel of John, you'll see that he's talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word that had become flesh. So, church, do you see who he was before he was laid in a manger? He was God. Now, just think about what this means of how rich he truly was. Rich beyond anything we could ever imagine. Think about it. As God, he was in possession of everything. All of creation was his. The heavens and the earth, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. You and I, all of humanity, were his. All of the minerals of the earth, gold, silver, diamonds, his at his disposal. Psalm 24.1 puts it as plain as you can. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. Everything was his. Yet, he had more than just earthly possessions. Think about it. He possessed the glory, the power, and the majesty of God. The angels adored him and bowed before him. He also possessed perfect fellowship within the Godhead, in the Trinity, with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And he possessed love from the Father. Perfect love. Just think on this pre-manger state of Jesus Christ. Think on the expansiveness of his riches. He was surrounded all the time by glory. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon rightly says, I shall ask your thoughts to go back to the time when Jesus Christ was rich. Poor are our words. They are but an accommodation of mortal speech to an immortal theme. How true is that statement? Just think of the gaudiest riches you can imagine. Kids, what could you think of that would be the just 
the most extravagant thing of wealth that you could picture. Think of the highest place of honor that someone in this world could ever attain. And then multiply that by tens of thousands, by tens of thousands. And you still won't even scratch the surface of how rich Jesus truly was. But try, try as we may for a moment, just pause and just think about the riches of Jesus Christ. And now move on with me to the next phrase, which is quite astonishing, where we are encouraged to then think on the lowered state of Christ. Notice what Paul says next in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. You can begin to see how difficult it is to really grasp the reality of this word. The God, who was infinitely rich beyond all measure, everything at his disposal, became poor. He didn't lose his riches. He didn't go bankrupt, but he took on poverty. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 really provides us with a lot of clarity of what this meant for Christ. And there Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, Christ, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Paul tells us that when Jesus took on flesh, he emptied himself. He laid aside his rights. This doesn't mean he lost his deity because it's in contrast to him having the right to have equality with God. What it means is that he had the right, when he arrived on earth, to claim glory and honor and wealth and everything. He had the right to exercise power. He had the right to exercise authority, his sovereignty over the entire world. But he laid it aside. He emptied himself. He exchanged glory for shame and ridicule. Sovereignty for subjection to human authorities. He was no longer adorned with majestic beauty that everyone stands in awe of. But as Isaiah 53 says, he had no beauty that we should desire him at all. He left his throne to hang on a cross. He laid aside the love of the Father to absorb the wrath of the Father towards our sin. And he even lived in material poverty. He was rejected and despised by men with no place to lay his head ridiculed and mocked. Church, this is how low, this is how low our Lord Jesus Christ came. And Paul says, if you notice, verse 9, he did this for your sake. He did this for your sake. It was for you 
that he lowered himself in this way. It was out of love for you. It was with an understanding of your helpless estate that he lowered himself and became poor. I put those together. Think on the eternally rich expansiveness of Christ's riches and then think of how he lowered himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, and then think about how that was for you. It is astonishing. It's astonishing. I I can't get over it when I actually stop and think about it. But here's where it gets amazing is, believe it or not, we're not done with this verse. There's still more to think on. And so let's look at the final phrase. Or it even gets even more incredible. And we're encouraged then to think on the exalted state of his people. Look again at our verse in verse 9 and, and feel the weight of the flow of this verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, the purpose for which Christ laid aside his high position, laid aside his glory, became poor, was so that you might become rich. Now what's interesting is the word for rich here is is in a tense that signifies it happened at a particular moment in time. It's not something that you gradually are becoming rich. The idea is that by his poverty, by his laying aside glory, by his taking on flesh, there was a moment in time when his people would place their trust in him and become rich. Rich. What does it mean, though, that we might become rich? Does it mean that we might become materially wealthy or some other kind of riches? Some people would put this verse forward and say, see, you will become rich in this world. But context is where it starts to help us understand this. This is where you have to start pulling back, and we're going to look at this even more closely in a second, but move up just to verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. And look at what Paul points to. He points to the grace of God, in verse 1, that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now think about that. He had talked about, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's pointing to the grace of God given to these churches. Now notice how he describes them in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You see, this is the first proof that Paul is not referring to material riches. He's not referring to the wealth of this world because he links the grace of God that was given to these churches with their extreme poverty. Think about it. If these churches were overflowing with the grace of God, why would they be in extreme poverty? if the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ brought us material riches. So he's not referring to that. But what riches is he referring to then? Now these are spiritual riches. Spiritual riches that I think we could spend 
the next week just thinking on. And I say this for two reasons. First, just look at the way the churches in Macedonia were rich. Notice the descriptive words that Paul uses. He says that they had an abundance of joy and a wealth of generosity. So I think the first way we see that Christ has made us rich is rich in joy and rich in generosity and liberality. But I also think that because we became rich through Christ's poverty, we should also see ourselves obtaining the same wealth in which Christ was rich, being the kingdom and the glory of heaven. The great theologian Charles Hodge puts it this way. He says, Believers are made rich in the possession of that glory which Christ laid aside or concealed. They are made partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4. That is of the divine holiness, exaltation, and blessedness. This is divine not only because of its source as coming from God, but because of its nature. So that our Lord says, The glory which thou gavest me I have given to them, John 11.22. Hence believers are said to be glorified with Christ and to reign with him, Romans 8.17. Unless he had submitted to all the humiliation of his incarnation and death, we should forever have remained poor, destitute of holiness, happiness, and glory. Those are the kind of riches we're talking about. And church, Christ has made us rich in an infinite number of ways. I thought of how Paul in Ephesians 3.8 speaks of the fact that he was made an apostle to declare the unsearchable riches of Christ. Riches that he just got done in chapter 1 and 2 of Ephesians, calling being holy and blameless in Christ, being predestined to adoption as sons of God, having redemption through Christ's blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, a glorious inheritance, a sealing of the Holy Spirit, being raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, having God's power working towards us, showered forever with the lavish kindness of God, having peace with God and others. And church, that's just the letter of Ephesians. One book, two chapters. The riches of Christ are infinite. Do you know that you have become rich? Do you know that you have become rich beyond your wildest dreams if you are in Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ took your sickness, your sin, your lack of holiness, your destitute state, your inability to be reconciled to God, and he went to the cross and he purchased for you eternal riches Spiritual riches, joy, peace, love, comfort, strength, and future glory beyond anything we can ever, ever, ever imagine. Don't look at the world and its definition of riches. It's so puny. It's so worthless. Look at the Word of God and see that you have become rich and then realize that that is why Christ left his high estate and lowered himself and went to the cross, was to provide you with those 
riches. You see, these are the truths and the spiritual realities that Paul longs for this church in Corinth and for us to think on. So think on them. Meditate on them. Ponder the reality of them. And then recognize that everything I have said this morning barely scratches the surface. My words fall flat in describing this. Now, now that we've meditated together on these spiritual realities, there's one more thing for us to consider. And that is the way this meditation should shape our lives. Because we don't do meditation just for the sake of meditation on the Word of God. It has a result. It needs to be applied. It strengthens our prayer in certain ways. And so to begin to see the way Paul desires for this to shape our lives, we must say the, see the way Paul is using this verse in its overall context. So now we're going to pull out, and we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, and we're going to see what this is doing in this letter. Look at verse 1. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed and a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Now pause right there for a moment. What Paul is saying is that, let me tell you about these churches in Macedonia. And let me tell you about the way that they gave to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. He had been traveling around and he had been encouraging the churches in the region to give to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem who were in great need. And he says, let me put forward these churches as an example for you to consider. Now pick back up in verse 6. He says, Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So here we see that Paul had sent Titus to this church. And he had urged Titus to complete the same act of grace that the Macedonians had in the church in Corinth. Meaning, he urged Titus to encourage them to give to the relief of, of the saints in the same way the Macedonians had done. Now, verses 8 and 9 then are set inside of this context. And let's look at those. Paul says next, I say this being that you excel in this act of grace, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And then our verse, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Paul says, I'm not commanding you to give to this need. But what I'm doing is encouraging you to prove your love, 
to prove that it's genuine by giving to this need. And this is where verse 9 is set. Verse 9 gives the reason for them to prove their love by giving to the relief of the saints. So verse 9 then serves to encourage love through giving because Christ showed his love to us through sacrificial giving. And by his sacrifice, he has made us infinitely rich. And if we see that we are truly rich in him in all of these ways that we've talked about this morning, we should be free to give liberally to the needs of others. So the primary way that Paul sees meditating on the truths and realities of verse 9 affecting and changing us is to make us joyful and generous givers to those who have need, givers to the work of God. So as you pause and you think of how to apply this, if you struggle to hold your money loosely, if you struggle to give to the needs you hear of around you, don't just tell yourself, I've got to do better at that. Start meditating on the truth that though Jesus was eternally rich, he lowered himself in poverty so that you might become rich. And as you meditate on that, let that change your heart and motivate you to give to the needs of others. You see, meditating on a truth like this is what changes us. Understanding it, thinking on it, is what changes us to be joyful givers. But as we conclude, I want to suggest that there are other things that we can take from this meditation, things that would be called implications of this. The main point, as I said, is that Paul saw this motivating sacrificial giving to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. But when we understand that this giving comes through love for others and for Christ, we can suggest other implications of how these truths can be used to motivate love in us. So let's consider a few. I think as we meditate on the exchange of Christ's riches for his poverty and his incarnation, it will spur on in our hearts true humility. It can help us fight against pride that says, I need to seek to protect my rights. And it doesn't matter how much it costs other people. I have rights, and I want to uphold them. You see, as you think of the fact that Jesus Christ (laughs) was God, and he had the right to come to this earth and say, bow down before me. When you think of who he was and yet the fact that he laid that aside for your sake, how can we ever, how can we ever cling to our rights? So if you struggle with that and you struggle with feeling like you need to protect yourself and you need to not give to others in that way, then meditate on the exchange of Christ's riches for his poverty. Another way, I think this can help us, is meditating on the riches that we now have in Christ can pull the desires of this world from our heart. It can pull them away. It can remind us that our status in this world means literally nothing. That honor and praise from this world is meaningless. And that the riches of this world are really nothing compared to the riches of Christ. 
another way. Meditating on the example of Christ's love in his carnation can move us towards loving others in many ways beyond giving. It will move us to give of our time to serve others like Christ gave of himself. It will move us to forgive others who have wronged us. It can motivate us to intentionally spend our lives encouraging and discipling others. So church, do you see? Do you see how taking time to think deeply on the truths of one verse in the scripture don't just serve a purpose of bolstering our understanding of what happened 2,000 years ago when Christ became a baby. But it bleeds into practical living. It comforts us when we are in trials and difficulties. It gives us truths to cling to when we are weak. It provides words of encouragement to help others. And it will provide words of an exhortation to lead others to pursue Christ. So the takeaway really is very simple. In this Advent season, as you are thinking on the incarnation of Jesus Christ, let the truth of the amazing gift of spiritual riches sink deep down into your heart. Let the spiritual reality of what has been done to purchase that for you motivate you to move forward in love and others. And let's see how at the end of December and starting in 2021, this has changed our church to be more like Jesus Christ. Will you stand with me as I pray this over us? Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would Open our eyes and our minds to understand what Jesus did as he came to this earth. Would you help us to truly comprehend the fact that though he was rich, for our sake he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. And would you change our hearts by the power of your spirit, reminding us that we have been redeemed reminding us that we have joy everlasting, reminding us that we are changed and never the same. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.